everyone. Thank you for coming back to Wickedly Macabre. I am Tiffany, and this is my best friend, Dee Dee. Hi, I'm Dee. She's the best. Hence the best and best friend. Aww. Anyways, we would like to start this episode by expressing how you guys are actually the best. There's no words to describe our gratitude for your support. All jokes aside, we came in this podcast knowing it would take a while to build up a fan base and couldn't have dreamed of the support that you've shown us. I We couldn't dream that we would have like so many listeners so fast um, gathering to listen, sharing our podcast, and to kind of go with us on this journey that we're taking. Um, it just, it really touches our heart and it means so much to us. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining in and supporting us. We couldn't be more grateful. You're literally the best. Such the best. We are going to continue with our case from the first episode. Yes. Dee, would you like to uh, start us off? Yes, I will start start us off because I left you guys off. Gotta pick us back up. We're gonna pick up. We're an Uber now. I am not an Uber. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, Hashtag you're a mom, not so. sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want, sponsor us, Uber. Um, so we, when we left off last episode, Dayton was in custody for the brutal murder of Jenny Smith. The same team of detectives working a new crime scene deep in the Malala Forest in Oregon, where they found the remains of seven women. Now, probably due to me having the first time jitters, um, and not taking my time and writing a thorough story, because I'm new at this, forgive me, I forgot to go over the crime scene findings in our first episode and it's so important to how everything comes together so that's where I'm going to start today is we're going to go back to the Denny's parking lot the investigators recovered a large knife one white tennis shoe one pink sock knotted shoelaces that did not belong to the white tennis shoe and her clothes near where the park had been, I'm sorry, where the truck had been parked. When they got to Dayton's shop and they started to research that after he was arrested, they found a, the hacksaw, uh, and in his wood stove, they found a shoe shank, eyelets, and swivels from Jenny Smith's missing shoe. So not the shoe itself, but the metal parts that a shoe contains. So fun fact, if you don't know, uh, I used to be the manager of a high-end shoe company. So a shoe shank is the thin piece of material between the insole and the outsole intended to support the foot and provide structure. Essentially, it's what the shoe is structured with. Your shoe could not be a shoe without a shoe shank. Okay, so that makes sense, the name. I didn't know what a shoe shank was, but, uh, you know, it's metal, and it's in a shoe. I'm assuming there's, like, a point to it, so shoe shank. 
sure you could like snap it out of your shoe and start shanking people. I mean, you want to try? Just kidding. <laughs> don't, don't shank people with your shoe shank. Okay, now I've lost my place. Thanks, Tiff. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what co-hosts are for. Okay, so they not only found the shoe shank for the missing shoe of Jennifer Smith, but they also found shoe shanks from two other pairs of shoes, more shoe eyes and nails, uh, partially burned fabric, many parts of bras such as snaps and fasteners. There were metal decorative clothing items in this fire pit and zippers and earrings um, or remnants of these items because they had been burnt. Uh, so they had to sift through the ashes in his wood stove to get that. Now, his truck was searched as well, and they collected a bungee cord, remnants of orange juice containers, many blood stains throughout the truck with type O and type A um, detected, multiple strands of hair, and empty Smirnoff vodka miniature bottles. Oh, and his passenger side of his truck was like covered in blood. So, geez, that's a big one. Clearly a crime scene. I mean, he could have hit a deer, right? I mean, sure, hit the deer and drag it inside. Sure. You gotta I don't have a passenger. Is I mean, most normal people leave it on the side of the road and call the authorities for it to be moved. Actually, in the state of Oregon, you can now claim roadkill uh, and eat it. Interesting. Yeah. So, there's another fun fact for you. Hashtag weird Oregon laws. Yep. Okay, so three weeks later, the... Okay, I'm going to start that over. Three weeks and seven bodies later, the investigators combed through another crime scene. The Malala Forest crime, crime scene. For nine days, they collected anything that was not created by nature. Now, Tiffany, you've been at crime scenes. You've seen or assisted in, like, crime scene evidence seizure-looking stuff. Like, is it just like, oh, hey, there's a piece of candy, and you put it in your little zippy bag? Or is it... If only it was that easy. Okay. No, it's like, um, say you are outside, okay. and you drop a needle. Like and it's a dark. sewing needle? Yes, like a sewing needle. And it's dark, and you're like, where's that at? And it takes you five million hours to find it. That's what it's like. Oh. But for nine days. With lots of people. And you don't know what you're looking for. You don't know what you're looking for. So okay. anything and everything that isn't grass and dirt and even then, that can be evidence. Oh. So, yeah, it's very tedious. Okay. And time consuming. And so doing that for even like an hour would be insane. Definitely. And it's very draining in every imaginable way. And they did this for nine days. Nine days. Um, yeah, nine days. Uh, detectives, after the nine days of searching, they reviewed the evidence and noticed some things that were strangely familiar. Empty Smirnoff vodka miniatures, and empty single-serving orange juice bottles, a big knife which gave them a sense of deja vu, and knotted shoelaces. Again with the shoelaces. Yeah. Uh, again with the Smirnoff vodka miniatures. Like, yeah, who seriously. just buys those that isn't an airline? 
or giving them out as Christmas presents. Like, they're just like those little novelty. Like, who takes those seriously? Who even knows where to buy them? Other than liquor stores. It's a liquor store. You go to the liquor store, you buy your miniature vodkas. I actually, I got, I got Jeff one year. Um, Jeff is my husband. Hi, Jeff. He, I got him one year, a little alien head miniature bottle, and I think it's like vodka, kind of like skull head vodka. Like, oh, that's interesting. Instead of diamonds, it's it's meteor that it's like filtered through, and it's green, and it's really cute. I got it for him like five years ago, and he still hasn't drank it. That's funny. So it's really cute. Apparently cute enough to keep it for five years. Yep. Jeff, drink that. Don't drink it. It's cute. Now, word gets out in Oregon and in the press, newspapers, news media outlets, not social media because that didn't exist back then, gets out to the people of Oregon. And calls start coming in. They did many interviews. A lot of these people that were calling in were sex workers at the time. And they all had a very similar tale to tell. They would get picked up by a man who would tell them his name was Steve. He was from Reno. He was a hotshot gambler. And he would uh, pick these ladies up apply them or attempt to apply them with alcohol. Uh, typically homemade screwdrivers that he would make on the drive to their date location with little single serve orange juice bottles. Let me guess. And the date location is the middle of a forest in Malala. Okay, I totally thought you were going to guess that the other part of that drink mixture was going to be the miniature Smirnoff bottles. I mean that too. I mean, you're right on both accounts. So he was making screwdrivers as he was driving to the Malala Forest with the sex worker in the passenger seat. He would drink a little bit of orange juice, pour the bottle in, shake it up a little bit, start sipping, Sometimes they would partake. Sometimes they would not partake. Um, Don't drink and drive, people. Don't drink and drive. That's just stupid. So when they got to the location, uh, the ladies would get naked. He would hogtie them. And sometimes he would vaginally penetrate them. But he would consistently be known to pay very special attention to the woman's feet, engaging more so in foot jobs than actual sex while they're tied up. Like, hog-tied, tied up. So at what point does it become violent? When does he bring the knife out? He typically brings the knife out after they've been tied up and he's kind of started to have his way with them and to complete this fantasy. So after engaging in foot jobs with them, he would typically take out his knife. It was clear once that happened, inflicting pain and drawing blood excited him. First, it was a threatening manner. Try to escape and I will cut you. And then he would eventually start cutting. 
One woman had her feet so badly cut up she could barely walk. Jeez. Another, he held a large knife to her vagina and threatened to gut her. She suffered a cut on her inner thigh when she escaped. Another woman asked the investigators after her interview, which was so much similar to the others, did he cut their feet off? And proceeded to show the detectives the jagged scar above her ankle where he tried to cut her foot off with a hacksaw. Oh my god, that's horrifying. Now, the detectives hadn't released that most of the victims that were found in the Malala forest had their feet severed just above the ankle. When the bodies were found, some of the mutilations, but others had to be verified by a coroner because of the state of these women's bodies. Body number one, the first body that was found, the one by the hunter, that was Raytha Marie Giles. She was the youngest of his victims, 16 years old. She was stabbed through the back. Her left foot was severed above the ankle. She was last seen on July 21st, 1987. She was a high school dropout from Estacada who did not have a drug problem. She was close with her family, but used the funds from sex working to buy items she could not otherwise afford. Lisa Marie Mock, 23 years old. She was the second body. She had cuts on the back of her thighs. Both feet were removed and found underneath her body. She was last seen on July 22nd or 23rd of 1987. She was suffering from heroin addiction and in an abusive relationship. But right before she went missing, she had just spoken to her grandmother about leaving her abusive relationship and getting into rehab. Noni Cervantes, she was 26. She was body number three. She still had both her feet, but was sliced open from her vagina to her sternum and completely eviscerated. In addition to that, one of her nipples was cut off. She lived in Canby, actually not too far from where Rogers lived. She was beautiful and tall, and she just had model-like features. She was last seen July 24th, 1987. Cynthia DeVore was the fourth body found. She had stab wounds to the lumbar region of her back, was last seen July 11th, 1987. She grew up on the streets and in foster care. At one point, after getting into foster care, she was attending school, she was getting good grades, and then life kind of took another dump on her, and she dropped out. She ended up having a baby as a teen, and her child was taken away from her, which caused her to even spiral even more. Um, but she had her dog, and she had she took that dog everywhere with her. Christine Adams. She was 35 years old. She was the fifth body found. Her right foot was severed. Her hands were still tied behind her back, and she had circular defects on her backside. Um... Her hands were tied with a dog collar. 
She was last seen on July 2nd, 1987. She was the mother of three, just trying to make ends meet. She had dreams just like any other female would have of being able to provide a better life for her, her kids, finding that special someone to come and sweep her off her feet. It wasn't a lifestyle that she chose, but something that she had to get into to make it every month. Body number six was a female, 20 to 32 years old, completely skeletal. During the autopsy, they found tool marks on the ankles, but the killer did not amputate the feet. She was not identified until 2013. Her name was Tonia Jari Johnston. Body number seven, Maureen Ann Hodges, 26 years old. She was mostly skeletal and her body had been scavenged and scattered by animals. There was no evidence of saw marks, but because she was scavenged by animals, it made it really hard to tell. She had multiple stab wounds to the posterior and lower back um, from what they could see on her vertebrae. She was last seen July 8th, 1987. She and her boyfriend, Tim, had been down on their luck and tried to turn things around. Living out of her hotel and trying to cut back on heroin, she disappeared after walking away from an argument with him. So apart from the sex workers calling in and telling their stories, there was another call. And it was a curious call. Not one that I don't think anybody expected to get. It was from a man named Mel. And he said he had a roommate at one point. His name was Tim. Who Dayton was seen sexually and had been seeing each other and maintaining a sexual relationship since they were kids. When Tim spoke to detectives, he confirmed that he and Dayton met while attending a Seventh-day Adventist Academy, and they started their sexual relationship as teenagers. Dayton once told him that he wished he hadn't called off their relationship, as it would have saved him from marrying women. Dayton kept relatively quiet during the investigation. Like, he kept saying, I want an attorney. Anytime the detectives came to talk to him, he was like, I'm not saying anything. I want my attorney. Like, he's been down this road before. He's been incarcerated. He's been questioned by the cops. He knows exactly what to do to try and protect himself as best as he can. So the cops weren't getting any information from him. Um, but during the holidays, he was talking with his wife and family members. And apparently he admitted to the killings, to them. Hey, dum-dum, that stuff's recorded. That's recorded! When you call somebody on a prison phone, it's recorded. He gets a pat-pat on the head for that. Oh, it's just so stupid. I mean, he was, he was rumored to be a smart person. Like, really high IQ. Are you sure? Yeah, I question everything. Because the way that the, the women typically escaped just like the the victims before from mm -hmm. the sexual assaults was i have to pee or i'm gonna act fast and run away that's that's how you survive is you act fast you run away 
or they just kind of gave him and be like, you're going to kill me no matter what, so I'm not going to scream for you. And he would just stop. Um, but he has a high intelligence, but somehow is just dumb enough to, one, kill people. That's stupid. Um, two, not run after your victims when they try to escape. And three, confess to killing people via recorded line. Although, were they recorded in the 80s? Yeah. I'm oh, okay. sure they were. Excellent. And then that leads to his prosecution. Is first tried for Jennifer Smith's murder. And then he is tried for not the seven victims in the Malala Forest killings, but only six because Tania hadn't been identified yet. I could not find a good enough reason, but they didn't try him for that murder. Interesting. I mean, they, they decided to separate the cases, um, not just because, like, they were kind of two separate cases, but because it gave them more time to prepare and make a stronger case against him for the six women. Six of the seven women. So, tactfully, it was a smart decision. I really don't know why they couldn't try him for the seventh, and I think it's kind of BS, but ultimately, Tania will also get justice. It's just not her name on the docket. During the trial, Dayton's lawyers tried to get a change of venue, which basically means moving the trial to another country, uh, country county, where jurors are less likely to have knowledge of the case from media or gossip, but the court denied it. Dayton's sentence was a bit unusual. In 1988, he was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole for the murder of Jennifer Smith. In June of 89, he was sentenced to death for the Moala Forest killings. According to his criminal record, he received 13 separate death sentences for six different cases, which is what Dee was just saying. They tried him separately for each case. The Oregon Supreme Court vacated the death sentence three times and remanded the case for a new trial. The first two court decisions came in 92 and 2000. In both instances, a jury again imposed the death penalty. On October 11, 2012, the Supreme Court of Oregon vacated his latest death sentence and remanded him again and then said that he was going to get a new trial. In 2015, a Clackamas County jury sentenced him to death for the fourth time. According to his defense attorney, Rogers would have waived all future appeals and allocated to his crimes in exchange for a true life sentence instead of the death penalty. According to his criminal record, he is remanded in prison for many counts of aggravated murder, which is defined by Oregon Revised Statute, or ORS 163.095 if you want to look it up. But here's the definition. Criminal homicide of two or more persons that is premeditated and committed intentionally with the intent to intimidate, injure, or coerce a civilian population, influence the policy of government by intimidation, 
affect the conduct of government through destruction of property, murder, kidnapping, or aircraft piracy. Who is pirating aircraft? I mean, D.B. Cooper, who is on our list. Okay, yeah, no. I just, I guess I see airline piracy as... And this sounds really stupid. Pirates? I seriously see an airplane, like a Boeing 747, with a full mast, and they hang the Jolly Roger (laughs) just off the back of this mast, and that's all there is. Sorry. Uh, We should have that in the book. The definition should just have a picture of that. Um, So, that's basically, there's more in here if you want to read the full thing but that's the definition of what it means for him in this case there is more but most of it applies to peace officers or parole and probation which if you don't know a peace officer is a police officer um yeah that always confused me like why have two different names because there's police officers there's deputies so like in this case they're all deputies oh so Um, there's state okay so it's peace peace officer is a generalized term for all law enforcement personnel exactly gotcha yeah okay so he is currently on death row in oregon's two rivers correctional institution in umatilla so in summary tiffany and all you listeners out there Dayton Leroy Rogers is a convicted piece of shit and is the first douche bagel, murderous dirtbag, on our stick list. What is the stick list, you might ask? Stick list is a list of people, if given the chance, we would beat with a stick. Yeah! I would beat that fucker with a stick. Sorry. Not sorry. Not sorry. We should put that in punishment for courts. That would be interesting. (laughs) You are sentenced to death and to be beaten with a stick by the wickedly macabre ladies. Yes, that should be a valid uh, criminal punishment is us coming at you with a couple of Irish shillelaghs. Yep. Yeah, it's gonna hurt. So, Dayton Leroy Rogers, you have made it to our stick list. If you have a story you would like us to feature on our show, email us your ideas at wickedlymacabre at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for another coin flip here at Wickedly Macabre. Bye! Bye!